that time of year again, and you'd be hard-pressed not to notice it. The houses, the shops, even the movies, everything seems to dramatically change quite predictably every December. Everything is transformed as though we're all celebrating something of immense importance. But just what exactly is the event of such immense importance that we're all supposedly celebrating? That's the question that many struggle to answer. Now, I take it that I am preaching to the converted. I take it that all of you know what the event is that we are celebrating. But in as much as the answer to that question can be entirely summarised in a single word, Jesus, yet the answer is so much of so much marvellous complexity that books exploring the issue could more than fill a library. Indeed, the Apostle John says that he doesn't think that the world itself could contain the books that could be written about this Jesus. So we have a joyous opportunity this time of year to uh, explore a narrative that, even though it's familiar, we can continue to learn more from. What an opportunity it is to explore this person who is himself beyond comprehension, And beyond just reading of him or reading about him, I pray that we will discover a Jesus that is of today superlative relevancy. This is not a figure that was once great but is now confined to the pages of history, but we read about a Jesus who previously initiated, presently saturates, and will finally culminate all that is and ever was history. Let us pray. O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, Sovereign over all history, grant us today that we might grasp the glories of your riches towards us as we seek you in your holy scriptures. Guard my words and keep me from error, I pray. If anything I say is in error, I pray that it be null and void. Lord, we pray. Glory to God in the highest. Amen. This December, in the lead up to Christmas, to help us contemplate the marvellous nature of our Saviour's birth, we'll be preaching through the first portion of the book of the Gospel of Matthew. We pick up the story today where Keith Hill left off in July. I'd like to thank Keith. He's kindly given us his uh, notes on the book of Matthew, and that's been very helpful as we've sought to arrange the December preaching series. As we learnt in July when Keith covered uh, the first part of Matthew with us, the book starts in this way. Biblos Geneseos, literally the book of Genesis. So from the get-go, we are expecting something big. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and now God is doing something new and equally important. We are expecting a new beginning for the people of God. So the first verse then reads, Biblos Genesis, the book of Genesis, of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. So by the conclusion of the first verse, the anticipation is palpable. This is a new beginning. This is the Christ, namely the Jewish Messiah or anointed one, the one who the scriptures so desperately anticipate. He is of David, and we remember King David and the covenant God made with him, and we yearn for the promised king to come from his lineage. He is of Abraham, and we remember the patriarch Abraham and the Abrahamic covenant that God made with him, and we yearn for the promised blessing that was to come through his seed. And so the expectation builds. What is about to happen could be nothing less than fantastic. And this too is how many people approach Christmas. Admittedly, there is a growing scepticism within our culture, in part because we remember the disappointment of many a Christmas past where our anticipation falsely placed fizzled. 
But still, there is a part of us that hopes that this time of year will prove to be something special. Indeed, as the song goes, this is the most magical time of the year. But then Christmas hits. Enjoyable, hopefully. Memorable, maybe. Magical, never. No, it's just like all the Christmases that went before it. Well, this year, as we together explore the biblical story, I pray that we might discover a Christmas that is more than magical. I pray that we might discover a Christmas that is miraculous. I want you to enter into the narrative that we've just read now in the book of Matthew. As we saw, the expectation has been building, and thus far, sorry, thus far, but the potential disappointment at this point in the Christmas story is so acute as to be, well, scandalous. Let me read. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child. The reader is spared from anything more than momentary anguish, as Matthew quickly adds in that the child is from the Holy Spirit. But Joseph, we need to remember, has not been likewise spared. He is unaware of the origin of this child. And so we read, And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. This single sentence no doubt carries more pain than is able to be put into words. In Jewish custom, the betrothal period was akin to the first stage of marriage. It lasted perhaps a year. The bride remained a virgin. She remained living with her parents. But the couple were so bound together in pledge that the bond couldn't be broken except through divorce. Accordingly, any marital violation during such time was considered adultery and punished as such. Now we begin to see something of the scandal, but not all of it. Let's continue. Joseph knows that the child is not from him. Now add to this that first century Jewish culture placed much greater importance on sexual purity than does our own. Add to this that this is likely an arranged marriage, and potentially both extended families have been highly invested and involved in this process. Add to this that they live in a small town and news travels fast. This scandal is big. In the preceding verse, it merely says, she was found to be with child. Did she tell Joseph? How do you find the words for that? How do you explain that? Yes, I am pregnant, but it's not as you think. It's a difficult thing to explain. Even in the first century, they knew where babies came from. It's likely for Mary that her name is soon Mud. But the situation tires not only Mary, but Joseph also. Now, evidently, this was a difficult time for both of them, and I don't want to uh, belittle Mary's experience today, but I'm going to focus on Joseph in keeping with the narrative as we find it in the Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel of Luke explores uh, Mary's story, and God willing, we'll have an opportunity to explore that at some uh, due time as well. But Joseph here, he has lost his reputation and his honour, and maybe he's even brought a degree of shame on his broader family. What is Joseph to do? To continue with the planned marriage would be problematic, to say the least. It will involve loving her from whom he feels perhaps his greatest degree of betrayal. It will likely be seen by some as an admission of Joseph's own transgressions. They no doubt have been asking, well, who's the father? And if Joseph proceeds to marry her, well, it must have been Joseph all along. So much for his righteousness, they might snicker. To continue with the marriage will also be in violation of Deuteronomic, Deuteronomic law, 
And we remember that Joseph is described as a righteous man. So what is he to do in such a situation? What we see is an attempt to mingle justice with mercy and righteousness with grace. Joseph does not shrink back from obedience to the law, God's law, the law of the old covenant under which he still lives. Joseph plans to divorce her. But, and I do believe that this is a very important detail, he resolves to divorce her quietly. And this is remarkable. Though she has betrayed him and shamed him, or so he believes, yet he chooses to refrain, refrain from further shaming her. This divorce is not going to be a big, ugly, ugly public event motivated by vengeance and a desire to clear his own name. No, this will be a quiet occurrence motivated by selfless interest and love for the other, and he was unwilling to put her to shame. So what's the point in all this detail? The other three Gospels managed to tell the Christmas story with barely a mention of Joseph. To be sure, actually, Luke scarcely mentions him and Mark and John don't mention him at all. But here God has chosen to elaborate quite a bit on Joseph's story. Why? What do we know about Joseph so far? So far, the only thing we know apart from his lineage is that we are told that he is a just man or in other translations such as the LSB that Ian read, a righteous man. We could take this to mean that he has regard for the law, the Hebrew Torah, um, and surely he does. But is that all that this is to mean here? Indeed, the scribes and the Pharisees were well known for their legal observance to the law, but Matthew never describes them as righteous. Rather, he records Jesus' indictment upon them. For I tell you, says Jesus, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 5.20. Sorry, I forgot to do a slideshow this morning with the scriptures. What is Matthew's purpose in all this discussion? What is it that God is leading Matthew to communicate to us through this passage? Here, God describes Joseph as a righteous man, and he does so to hold out Joseph to us as an example of what righteousness looks like. And what does it look like? Evidently, it looks like obedience and love. It looks like innocence and grace. Joseph, by his actions, he is innocent. He's had no cause in the apparent, no causal role in the apparent scandal. He plans obedience, that is, obedience to God's law. He is motivated by love. And indeed, we remember that love is the basis of both the first and the second greatest commandments, on which the whole rest of the law hangs. And finally, he adopts a practice of grace. He chooses to treat Mary better than he supposes her actions deserve. And so he is described by God as righteous. Now, as we discuss righteousness in this context, it's worth a point of clarification. I'm not here discussing imputed righteousness. That is, the moral righteousness of Christ counted towards us, the righteousness which is Christ's, which is given to us, by which we are saved, and by which we shall be able to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So hear me, I'm not, I'm not talking about imputed righteousness. No, here the Bible is talking about what Jonathan Edwards calls inherent righteousness, and to quote Jonathan Edwards, that is, that holiness and grace which is in the hearts and lives of the saints. The underlying Greek word here, dikaios, is used about 20 times in the New Testament, and it refers perhaps with roughly equal frequency to, to both kinds of righteousness. Now, leaving academic discussions aside, the point that we are trying to make here is that the righteousness that God desires to be characteristic of our lives is both innocence and obedience but it is equally love and grace, and it is indivisible. 
Let your conception of righteousness accord to God's description of righteousness. Don't constrict your definition of righteousness into something lesser. Into something lesser. It's not a matter of obedience devoid of love, nor is it a matter of just all about love and, and nothing to do with obedience. In Paul's concluding remarks in Ephesians, he writes... Um, <clears throat> He, he gives us the weighty imperative to find out what pleases the Lord. And so I ask you likewise to turn your minds in self-examination of your lives against the backdrop of the righteousness that God calls us to. A righteousness which Joseph here displays in part. A righteousness which is ultimately displayed at the cross at Calvary. Does God, does God call us to such, you ask? Yes, he does. If we turn from our reading here but one or two pages into Matthew chapter 5, we read the words of Jesus be perfect, even as your heavenly Father is perfect. So we must consider our present state and consider the righteous state that God calls us to. And then on our knees, we need to cry out to him that he might effect transformation in us, this transformation that is entirely beyond our ability to bring about. We can't change our own wicked hearts, but God desires not only to redeem us and to impute his righteousness, but to instill his righteousness. And we need to beseech him that he might bring this work through to fruition. We need a righteousness that should be characteristic of what we do and say and think. We need a righteousness that will be transformational. I pray that Christmas for you this year might be more than magical. I pray that by God's grace and by his power, by his work in your life, it might be divinely transformative. Now, we've spent a lot of time considering the apparent scandal of this situation, but we all know the story. We all know where this baby comes from. When the angel comes in verse 20 to tell Joseph about the origin of the baby, it comes as no surprise to us. But the question I'll ask you today is, yes, you know where he comes from, but do we grasp the full significance with which he comes? Let's read verse 20 again. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying... Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is in her, uh, which is conceived in her, is from the Holy Spirit. And so the nightmare that has agonized Joseph's thoughts as he's pondered the origin of this child is replaced by a dream carrying sweet assurance from on high. We need to ask, why does God choose such a peculiar way of sending the Messiah into the world? But the more we ponder this question, the more we're likely to ask, what better way could God have chosen to send the Messiah? What a perfect way for the hope of Israel to enter into history. If God merely wanted to show off his miraculous capabilities, I guess he could have sent Jesus down to earth in a glowing ethereal basket, radiant with light to the sound of trumpets. But here, in this peculiar conception, where do we even begin to start to unpack the significance of what is happening? We see some themes here. And I don't have time to mention them, but only in brief. This miraculous conception demonstrates that this child is the divine son of God. God is entering into history. Further, being born of a woman, he fulfills the promises given, the promise, singular, given to Eve some 4,000 years prior. After Adam and Eve ate the fruit in the garden, they were expelled from the garden, God pronounced their punishment, but he also gave the promise to Eve that one day one of her descendants would crush the serpent's head. And so Christ is born of a virgin. And yet the virgin was betrothed. She didn't have to be. God could have sent him at another time. Why? 
because God had a purpose for Joseph too. He sends an angel to Joseph that he might take Mary as his wife and name the child. By naming the child, Joseph is indicating that he accepts the child as his own. By way of example, consider Isaiah 43, 1, different context. I have called you by name, you are mine, the Lord says. And so Joseph names this child and he becomes, in effect, the earthly father of Jesus. And so this child is also a son of man. He partakes in our humanity. And this is a theme that's going to be further developed through the New Testament. We're going to see a lot of this coming through in the book of Hebrews. Further, being of the lineage of Joseph makes him likewise of the lineage of David and of the patriarchs and Adam. So in Christ we have a new Adam, we have the fulfillment of the promises to the patriarchs, and we have our long-promised Davidic king. Again, these themes, we don't have time to explore them much today. But they are prophetically fulfilled by this peculiar conception that God has arranged. In the virgin birth, the rays of the Old Testament prophetic expectation, they converge and they illuminate with splendour the child lying in the manger. The virgin birth will be glorious, fit for a king. There will be heavenly choirs and celestial signs and royal delegations bearing gifts. But the birth will also be ignoble. As we see, it's shrouded in scandal and we know that it will be tainted with poverty. And this too is to fulfil the Old Testament expectations. For as the prophet spoke, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Isaiah 53. All these themes could be further explored, but all these themes come together in the virgin birth. There are two things, however, I'll just briefly explore with a little bit more detail. The first is a theme that Keith picked up on where it began in the first two verses of Matthew. As mentioned at the start of, uh, of this book, the words Biblos Geneseos, uh, literally the book of Genesis, these words anticipate that God is doing a new creating work. There is a new beginning here. The theme continues here. Uh, note verse 18, the opening verse of this section, now the birth of Jesus Christ, literally the genesis of Jesus Christ. And further... As the book of Genesis identifies that God created the world through the creative agency of his spirit, reading Genesis 1, and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So to hear, this beginning comes through the agency of his spirit, reading Matthew 1. She was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And again, that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. This concept of a new beginning is not unique to the Gospel of Matthew, but each of the four Gospels, in different ways, draw out the novelty of what is here transpiring as God enters into history. God willing, we'll explore it from John's perspective in a fortnight's time. But can I say in passing as well, as we consider the similarities between Genesis 1 and Matthew 1, what is pictured here in Matthew, conception through the Holy Spirit, is not some sort of uh, divine, human, carnal interaction as you might expect to find in paganism. This is not a coital act, but rather what is pictured here is similar to Genesis. The spirit is hovering over the situation, imparting life and new creation. The second thing that I want to draw attention to is the believability of the virgin birth. About a year ago, I remember I was in discussion with two colleagues concerning the validity of miracles. What about evolution? What about the flood? What about, what about, what about? And so the questions came. And then almost with an element of triumph, as though they'd done their checkmate move. What about the virgin birth? They said rather scornfully. Similarly, I remember watching a debate between Richard Dawkins and the Christian apologist John Lennox. 
And uh, in Dawkins' closing argument, he says, almost with a sneer, as he points at John Lennox, he says, this man here believes in the virgin birth, as though that to him was the pinnacle of stupidity. Many choose to believe the scandal and scoff at the miracle of the virgin birth. But not Joseph, and why? Because it had been revealed to him by God. The divine origin of Jesus had been divinely revealed to Jesus. And so in a sense, the virgin birth obscures the origin of Christ for those who have not been given faith. It was the case then, and it still is the case today. And so Jesus can say, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you are pleased to do. Interestingly, the skeptics ask for a sign. If God is real, they say, why doesn't he give us a sign by doing something completely miraculous, something scientifically impossible? God gives us the sign of Emmanuel, a child born of a virgin, fulfilling all his Old Testament scriptures. Something completely miraculous, and the skeptics say, I can't accept that. Why? Because it's scientifically impossible. Wisdom is proved right, and and God is glorified. The virgin birth then demonstrates that we have arrived at a new beginning, the fulfilment of prophecies past, and yet the truth of this birth is only perceived by those who God chooses to reveal it to. Again, I pray that Christmas for you this year might be more than magical. I pray that God might reveal it to you as a remembrance of the new beginning that all who are in Christ together share. Now, what shall we say of this new beginning? What sort of beginning is it? New beginnings are not always good, are they? Are you going to be disappointed with this new beginning? Young adults today change their jobs with higher frequency than any preceding generation in history, so I'm told. I think we love new beginnings because it gives us something ahead to look forward to. It gives us something to hope for. But sometimes I wonder if we're not so much looking forward to a new beginning as we're looking behind at our last new beginning, which didn't work out how we wanted it to, and we're running away from that to anything else, to, to a new beginning. It doesn't matter which one. What is it in your life? What new beginning do you need to bring you fulfillment, to bring you peace, to bring you salvation? How many things have you tried previously, hoping to usher in a new chapter in your life, a chapter that finally ends happily ever after? But each chapter comes and each chapter goes and the next chapter starts and happily ever after is always out of reach. What new beginning do you need? We see here a new beginning like no other. See, the angel does not merely instruct Joseph to name the baby boy, but he tells Joseph what name to name him. Kids paying attention. For the baby who is indeed king of kings and lord of lords... Well, we wouldn't be surprised if he has a name of great pomp. But instead he gives, he gives a rather common Hebrew name. You shall call his name Jesus, the angel says. But why? And we read on. Because he shall save his people from their sins. Jesus meaning saviour. So this new beginning is one of salvation, and specifically salvation from sin. This is not salvation from the Romans. This is not salvation from famine and drought. This has got nothing to do with sickness or frailty or cancer or even death. Well, the first death, that is. 
but God gives them a savior for their sins. What is it that you are hoping for this Christmas? What is it that's at the top of your wish list? Perhaps a savior from sin is the most underappreciated Christmas present of all time. Would this make it onto your shopping list, onto your wish list? Do you long for deliverance from the guilt of sin? Now, granted, I ask this question, but it's hard to long for something that you already have. And for us who are in Christ Jesus, this is already ours in Christ Jesus through his completed work. But do we appreciate that which we've been given? Then do we crave for deliverance from the practice of sin? Christ is doing this in our lives through his spirit. The Holy Spirit has been sent to sanctify us. And finally, do we crave to be free of the effects of sin? That is, do you long for the day when God will say, Behold, I am making all things new. And the corruption of the very world around us, a world corrupted and frustrated by our sins, the corruption will be finally done away with. And once again, God will look at the world and say, It is good. And we will be part of that good and perfect world. We who have trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins, he will save his people from their sins. This is indeed the greatest gift of all times. If you're longing for a new beginning today, you don't need a new job or a new relationship. You don't need a new style or a new mojo. You don't need a new toy, no matter how promising or appealing it might be. You don't need deliverance from the Romans or whatever else it is that's oppressing your soul. No, you need deliverance from that which oppresses your very soul, which oppresses your salvation. You need deliverance from sin. If you're longing for a new beginning today, can I suggest that you go no further? For deliverance from sin is what we really need. And you will find this. You will find your perfect saviour in God's gift to his saints, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the angel says, Call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And this name anticipates a glorious new future for the people of God. But this baby boy is then given a second name, Emmanuel. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, strictly speaking, as far as we can tell, Emmanuel was not Jesus' first name, nor was it his second name, nor was it his nickname. We do believe that it was a name that was actually given to a child approximately 700 years before Jesus, and here comes the tricky part. You see, this prophecy was originally given to King Ahaz in the times of the kings by the prophet Isaiah. Judah at the time was oppressed. There was temptation to trust in Egypt rather than to trust in God for the deliverance of sins. Uh, sorry, for deliverance from the enemy. God says, in effect, no, trust me. I am your savior. And he gives Ahaz a, a prophecy and a promise suggesting deliverance. He, he gives a sign. And ultimately, God does deliver them. And that's the prophecy that we read in Isaiah 7 that is picked up here in Matthew. And we deduce from the scriptures that there was a temporal fulfillment around 700 BC, a child born who bore this name. But the wording of the prophecy potentiates the expectation that there is a later and greater fulfillment. That's the tricky part. Read Isaiah 7 during the week if you have opportunity. But the point that I'm getting to is this. The threads of the birth narrative as detailed in the Gospel of Matthew show, demonstrate that when taken together, this is the final and perfect fulfillment of this prophecy. It is not ultimately to do about deliverance from foreign powers. It is, due to, it is, it is pertaining to our deliverance from sin 
And how is Jesus the perfect fulfillment? How is the virgin birth the perfect fulfillment for this? Well, firstly, Jesus is of the line of David. Second, he is born of a virgin. Third, he is a sign of our deliverance. And fourth, being God himself, he is Emmanuel, God with us in the truest sense. The details of Jesus' birth reflect back to demonstrate that he is the fulfillment of this prophecy. This prophecy then reflects forward to further expand our understanding of the significance of Jesus' birth. God's intent was to be with his people. We remember that in the Garden of Eden, he creates it and he is there dwelling with his people. We sin, we separate ourselves from God. Jesus comes to be the saviour for our sins. Is it any surprise then that if he saves us from our sins, he restores to us what we lost through sin? In Jesus, God is once again with us. And this is not confined merely to the 30 years of Jesus' earthly life, at the end of which he says, and surely I am with you to the very end of the age. And so Jesus is our enduring Emmanuel. His presence is now mediated to us through the Holy Spirit. And his presence doesn't come to an end at the end of the age either. No, because it's the end of the age where God ushers us into the consummated kingdom where we shall dwell with him perfectly, eternally, forever. And so Jesus is our eternal Emmanuel. The curse of sin is finally broken, and that which was lost at the fall, the presence of God with us, is now forever secured by the work of Jesus Christ. Again, I pray that Christmas for you this year might be more than magical. I pray that you might be able to worship Jesus both as Saviour and Emmanuel. In closing then, yes, Christmas has come around once again. There are baubles and there are tinsels and there's a large man wearing a red suit. People are erecting reindeers and snowmen in their front yards under the idea that they enjoy the 30 degree plus heat. Many are trying to recreate something of the magic of Christmas. And if you're going to be content with a gauntlet of food and presents and festivities, maybe add a little nostalgia on top, well, then you're going to have your magical Christmas. But the Bible speaks of a Christmas that was more than magical. It was nothing less than miraculous. The Bible speaks of God, whose righteousness combines both justice and mercy, and he sends his very son into the world, a new beginning for those who accept him in faith, a beginning that entails salvation from our sins, and a beginning that entails reconciliation with God, Emmanuel, God with us. Is this the kind of Christmas that you want? This is the kind of Christmas that you need. My friends, let this time of year be a time to relish Christ in all his fullness. Taste and see that the Lord is good. I pray that your hearts might rejoice in the miracle of Christ's coming this year. For any here who have not tasted the Lord, who have not experienced the new beginning in Christ, who have not been saved from sin nor united with God, delay no longer. I pray that God might reveal to you, as he did to Joseph, the divine origin of this child. And I pray that you, like Joseph, might be able to accept the revelation of God and embrace this child as the Messiah, even if, for whatever reason, accepting that truth might bring with it certain difficulties. Can you follow this example? With God's help, you can. I pray that this Christmas might be transformational for you.
Let us close in prayer. Father, our minds are too small to grasp your glory and our hearts are too calloused to fathom your love. Yet we pray that you might direct our attention towards Christ, both at this time and always. And bless us, Father, we pray. Bless us with all the blessings that are found in Christ. Draw us into song with the heavenly choirs of angels who proclaim your goodness and marvel at what you have done, sending your very Son, Emmanuel, God, with us. Glory to God in the highest, we pray. Amen.